Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfang, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. In this episode, I am opening myself up and getting vulnerable about not only my diagnosis, but why I started survivingbreastcancer.org and the passion I have to help others who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Hello, everyone. This is our initial podcast at survivingbreastcancer.org. And I thought I'd take a minute to ask surviving breast cancer founder and executive director, Laura Jean Carfang, a few questions to get us going. Hi, Laura. Let me start by asking you to tell your breast cancer story from the initial diagnosis onward all the way through to hormonal therapy. It's a really big question. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. So initial diagnosis. I was diagnosed September 22nd, 2016, um, mainly because I checked myself in to the Breast Health Center at um, Tufts Medical in Boston because I needed to know that I did not have breast cancer. Um, I think it's quite common for younger women to be told by their primary care doctors that there's nothing to worry about. It's just dense breast tissue. And I was like, sure, okay, fine. It could just be dense breast tissue, but let's just have a mammogram. This would be my first mammogram ever. So let's just have a mammogram to make sure and roll out that it is not actually breast cancer. So I remember making an appointment for 8 a.m. in the morning. I remember calling my employer saying, you know, I have a doctor's appointment, but it's nothing serious. I'll be in a little bit late. So just FYI. And I go to Breast Health for my first mammogram. And that we'll save that story for like a whole nother podcast lecture because, yeah, let me tell you, it's not a fun experience. Um, but because of the dense tissue, the... Um, the doctors there wanted to actually escalate it up and do an ultrasound so they can get better imaging. So after mammogram, I had an ultrasound and the doctors were quite concerned that they asked what I was doing during the lunch hour and if I could stay in the hospital and uh, the doctor could squeeze me in and do a biopsy that day. So what turned out to be, um, you know, something that I thought was just going to be peace of mind, you have nothing to worry about, go to work by 9 a.m., turned into me canceling the whole day of work, calling my boyfriend to say, you know, they want to do a biopsy. I've never had a biopsy done before. I'm now actually pretty scared. I think you need to come to the hospital. And he did. And then they did this biopsy and everything was happening so quickly. So it went from like mammogram to the ultrasound to biopsy. And the doctor brought me into the office before the biopsy to sign some paperwork. And she was explaining to me that, you know, there are risks associated with a biopsy and that there is the potential for, you know, air getting into the, I don't know the technical term, like the machine that they use for the biopsy and can result in a collapsed lung. So here I am thinking, oh my gosh, there might be a tumor. It might be positive. We have to do a breast cancer biopsy. And now I have to sign a consent form saying that I understand the risks and that my lung could potentially collapse. Needless to say, I burst into tears. This is very overwhelming. I've never heard of any of these terms before. Um, you're kind of going through the paperwork because you have to kind of sign away. Like, who's not going to sign? You want to know, right? So you're signing away to all of these risks. And then they did a biopsy, and it was the most painful thing I have ever experienced. Um, even in hindsight, after going through radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery, the biopsy to this date is still something that just gives me nightmares, um, not to scare anyone who has to have a biopsy, but they literally go in and cut out a piece of your tissue. And for good reason, they need to test it, but at the same time, it's quite overwhelming. 
So that was the first experience there with the Breast Health Center. I had to wait approximately a week and a half to get the results of that. Um, In the meantime, the waiting period seems to be the most traumatic. I was Googling absolutely everything. I had no idea what stage I was. I didn't know if it was malignant or benign. I had no idea if it had spread to other parts of my body. So here I am going from like no cancer to like stage four on Google search and WebMD, just trying to figure out what was going on. And your mind is racing. I didn't tell anybody that I was going through this except, you know, my immediate family and my boyfriend at the time, but I didn't mention anything to my colleagues um, or outside friends. And so you can only imagine how hard it was at work to concentrate while you're actually thinking about, oh my gosh, do I have cancer? So that was the diagnosis piece. Um, Things moved really quickly after that. I got a phone call from the hospital confirming that I had um, stage two breast cancer, stage two B, I believe. And they wanted to bring me in like next week to get a port placed to start chemotherapy immediately in terms of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which is chemotherapy before surgery with the hopes of getting a 100% complete response rate, assuming that I would be able to like shrink this tumor size so that I'd be eligible for potentially a, a lumpectomy. So again, you barely have any time to comprehend, to research or let things digest. It went from you have cancer to coming in, getting a port placement. Um, you can see like the scar that I still have just on my right-hand side for where the port was placed, opposite of where the cancer was on the left-hand side of my body. And before you knew it, um, I was back at the hospital getting five different types of chemotherapy drugs. I was on the ACT treatment. So I will link below to all of the the actual chemotherapy drugs um, so I can get the spellings correctly and the the effects of them. I was also on Herceptin for 12 months that I was receiving every three weeks, as well as Progetta. And the whole neoadjuvant chemotherapy phase was about six months. Pretty much had that from October through just before April. My surgery date was scheduled for April, I believe it was April 6th on 2017. And I had a lumpectomy. I guess you can call it a bilateral lumpectomy. I don't know the actual term, but there was surgery on both sides, as well as a full node dissection, auxiliary node dissection, um, because... So this cancer had spread to my lymph nodes. And then from there, I had, let's see, about four weeks of recovery, three drains, working on mobility. And then after that, I was eligible for radiation. So I had 33 rounds of radiation. After that, um, given the fact that I did not have a 100 complete response rate to the chemotherapy after getting more CT scans Um, and bone scans just to confirm where my cancer was and how I was responding to the treatment. My oncologist recommended going back on chemotherapy, but this time it would be an oral chemotherapy called Zolota or Capsidabine. So I was on that. It was a pill I took three times a day for six months. And I was back at work full time still while on this chemotherapy. And it was hard. You know, I think sometimes we get into our minds that you know, you're just taking a pill, you're taking a vitamin, you're taking something, and you're not like sitting in an infusion chair. But over time, the first um, you know, the first month wasn't so bad. But by the time I was getting to month three, four, and five, and six, oh my gosh, I was responding to the treatments in the sense of um, getting real redness in my hands and my feet, and was real susceptible to developing blisters. And 
my understanding is that because this oral chemotherapy was going into my bloodstream, any sort of impact or friction would cause the capillaries to break and the chemo actually burning through and resulting in like blisters on the skin. So as someone as active as myself, I this prohibited me from exercising, from running, from jumping, any sort of high impact. Um, you know, push-ups were painful because of the redness on my hands. So it was a really low point, I think, for me in where I was um, literally about 18 months of treatment, if you think about chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, more chemotherapy. Beginning in January of 2018, I was put on hormonal therapies because my breast cancer is hormonal positive. And so we wanted to reduce the amount of estrogen in my body. So I was diagnosed at 34 um, in 2016. Now I'm 36 in 2018. And you know, that's, that's premenopausal, right? Like I still have hormones and all of that good stuff and estrogen in my body, but I was medically induced into menopause. I receive a Lupron shot every three months to suppress the ovaries. While I was going through chemotherapy, I was actually on Zolodex, which was a shot I would get in my stomach, um, I think almost every week to also suppress um, the ovaries during that time of treatment. And, you know, there's two classes of hormonal therapies that um, ER positive estrogen or hormonal receptive um, breast cancer patients tend to be put on. And one classification falls under tamoxifen and the other one would be aromatase inhibitors. And I would encourage anyone, if they want to learn more about these hormonal therapies is to log on to our survivingbreastcancer.org YouTube channel where I do a whole video series on hormonal therapies and go into a little bit of a deeper dive on my experience with them. But after a consultation with my doctors, we decided to go on uh, letrozole, which is the hormonal therapy that I'm on, plus a Lupron shot. And given my age and my cancer type, I'm going to be on this for probably the next 10 years. So that brings us up to date on, on where I am with treatment and survivorship and life after diagnosis. Well, that's an incredible story. And obviously, it's, uh, it's full of complex issues and decision-making. So can you speak? I know you've touched upon that basically with, uh, with regards to your relationship with your oncological team, but also speak to how much research that you did. I know you touched upon it in your uh, podcast here, but um, just, to, just to speak a little bit more about self-advocacy. Yeah, great question. And I feel like there's two different camps here too. I feel like everyone's going to tell you to advocate for yourself and you are your own best advocate. So I echo that. You know your body best. Doctors are experts in their fields, but at the end of the day, you understand the changes in your body. You have to advocate for yourself. You know when you're not actually feeling 100% or normal. So going back to the onset of my diagnosis, I was not going to settle for the explanation that I had nothing to worry about and it was just dense breast tissue. I was like, no, I know my body and something actually feels a little weird. This is a little like not normal for me. So let's just get that verified. And thank goodness I did because we were able to catch this at stage two instead of something a little bit more aggressive, despite the fact that my cancer was aggressive, but we caught it at a stage two level. And then, you know, I was in some support groups as well, talking to other women. And that's when I realized also that while I was like a huge advocate in terms of research and Googled absolutely everything and was looking at medical journals and trying to get as much information as I could, I also realized that there's a whole camp of people out there who actually don't want to know. They don't want to Google everything. They do not want to look up the symptoms or the what ifs or could it be this and kind of wrap their head around everything that was happening. 
and that they really, you know, as they should put our medical care team like on a pedestal. They are the experts, which is which is great. I I agree. But at the same time, too, you need to feel empowered. And when you do a little bit of research just to know what the options are, a lot of times medical professionals don't utilize layman's terms. So I recommend always coming to your appointments with, if you are fortunate enough to be able to bring a friend with you or a significant other or a spouse, it's important to have a second set of ears because this is very overwhelming for the patient. So what you're trying to absorb and listen Um, it's nice to have a second person there to also reaffirm what is being discussed. I also showed up to every appointment with pen and paper and did not hesitate to say, okay, aromatase inhibitor. Like, how do you spell aromatase? Like, let me write down this, these words. How do you spell letrozole? How do you spell Lebron? How do you spell, um, cytoxin? One of the chemotherapy drugs I was on. So that way I could go home and spend time on the computer and looking this up. And sometimes that would spark additional questions. Um, You know, I think we live in an age, a digital age, where we are very fortunate to have access to the internet and you can Google or YouTube and look up absolutely everything. And so oftentimes that would spawn additional questions. And you definitely want to form a relationship with your medical care team where, you know, is there an email address that you can reach out to? Or how do you get in contact with somebody after hours? Because you might want to know answers different questions might come up saying, oh, I was researching and I saw X, Y, and Z. How does that relate to me? So just being able to make sure that you have access to your team, I think is really important. So that's how I feel about the advocacy piece. I want to talk about also your second question about decision-making because that's a really personal decision as well. So after you go through and research as much as you want to and can and have access to, the decision becomes really hard. And, you know, you want to go to your doctors and your surgeons um, and your oncologists and say, okay, what do you recommend I should do? What do you think I should do? What surgery options are there? I know I had genetic testing, which was not required, but an option for me. Um, You know, I was going to my family and genetics is such one of those topics where your health is you until you do genetics testing, because when you get the results of your genetic test, that doesn't just impact you, but that actually impacts your siblings, your family, your parents, and your offspring. So that is just one example of a decision that is no longer, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a a singular experience or decision, but it impacts more than just yourself. Um, And there's some controversy about that. I know a lot of people who do not want genetics testing because they don't want to know. If I did genetics testing, I did not carry the BRCA gene, um, which is one of the the popular genes that um, increases your disposition to acquiring breast cancer. Had I carried the BRCA gene, we would have gone 100% with a mastectomy versus a lumpectomy. But looking at your options, for example, with reconstruction, if you had a mastectomy, are you going with implants? Are you doing one of the other surgeries where they um, take tissue from other parts of your body to reconstruct your breast? What other medical and health issues are you concerned about that would impact that decision of what type of surgery you have? I know other women who have also decided to go 100% flat or delay reconstruction. I actually just met with a woman who is going through surgery. She's at Beth Israel, a hospital here in Boston. And literally she was telling me that she has the option with her mastectomy to get implants that go in front of the muscle tissue. Um, normally you'd have implants when you have like your chest wall 
in your muscle, the implant goes behind the muscle. And when you have your expanders, that can be quite a painful experience for some people. Um, but now this one doctor here was able to offer an option where the implant actually goes in front of the muscle and behind the skin. And so you're not actually stretching the muscle out. And I thought, I have never heard of that before. And so it's amazing how quickly research is advancing. And, you know, from my surgery in 2017 to her surgery in 2018, there's already this advancement where where they place the the implant can actually affect your mobility and outcome and pain, et cetera. So I'm definitely going to bring her on the podcast in a couple of weeks to have her talk about her experience with that. But I'm digressing. You were asking about decision-making. At the end of the day, I'll just leave you with the note that at the end of the day, it's your decision. When you meditate, when you go to sleep at night, when you look at yourself in the mirror, what are you most comfortable with? And it's great to get opinions. Everyone has an opinion, trust me. But at the end of the day, when you're at peace with your decision, you know you're making the right decision. Well said. All right. Now, from the perspective of caregiving, I know that your partner and your family were wonderfully supportive behind you. Uh, can you speak to that, the importance, the significance, the role of the caregiver um, and how that supports you all through your process? Yeah, caregiving. Um, well, I'm going to start off with a quote that I heard recently. You know, a lot of people say that you're on this breast cancer journey. And when it comes to caregiving and people reaching out, it's okay if there are people in your lives that actually can't go on this journey with you. And when someone said that to me, I was like, that's so true. Like, this is my journey and I don't have a choice. I'm on it. I'm on the train and I'm going forward. But I have to understand and appreciate that not everybody in my life is ready for this journey. And so some people have been part of my journey up until this point. And I have lost acquaintances and friends, people who actually did not know how to respond to the fact that someone in their 30s had breast cancer. Um, they weren't ready to respond. They didn't know how to respond and they distanced themselves, which is fine. There's no animosity about that. Again, not everyone's ready to be on this journey. And then there were people who literally came out of the woodwork, people I never thought um, cared about me as much as they do or would think about me, came out of the woodwork and were 100% part of this journey and continue to support me in my survivorship because breast cancer doesn't end when treatment ends. Breast cancer is something that is going to be with me for the rest of my life because of the treatments that I went through and Everyone thinks like your hair is back, you're back to work, you look normal on the outside, but on the inside, there's still a lot of health management that we're taking care of. And you really need a support system of a variety of people to help you go through this. So in terms of caregiving, I think it's a really broad scope. Caregivers could be your significant other. They don't have to be your significant other, but having someone who's kind of seeing you on the day-to-day -day is quite helpful in understanding that there may be mood swings, there may be yeah, just a lot of changes. You may potentially be losing your hair if you're going under certain chemotherapies. And, you know, having someone to support you while you're going through a diagnosis, physical changes, and then kind of this transformation. You lose your hair, you're going through surgery. Um, how does that fall into the scope of your identity? So there's a lot of questions that you have to kind of muscle through. And caregivers can come in all sorts of personas, right? You have your significant others, you may have friends, family members, siblings, but I would also incorporate with your caregiving perspective is looking and reaching out to other survivors because it was really important for me to have a supportive community um, to help me kind of unpack everything that I'm going through. 
But I also wanted to speak with other people who have been diagnosed with breast cancer because I was going through so many symptoms that I really wanted to speak with someone who understood 100% like this is what you can expect from surgery or this is what you can expect from radiation. And also seeing survivors who are, you know, one, two, five, 20 years out gave me so much hope to know like, wow, you made it through. You're on the other side. You're surviving. You're living. Like things look great. And from a caregiving perspective too, that I thought was really important to have different people supporting you in different ways throughout your journey. Terrific. And now, as far as uh, transparency, I, I've noted that you begin YouTube uh, videos, etc., describing your experience as you were experiencing either setbacks or surgery or various forms of chemo or, or hormonal therapies, radiation, etc., and you, were, you seem to have been very transparent about the entire ordeal. Uh, I know that some people are not so, and they, they tend to keep it closer to mm-hmm. the vest. Describe your thought process for being so transparent. Yeah, hot topic for sure. I think, um, again, this goes back to your personal decision and how you want to manage your diagnosis. You know, I was not transparent at the very beginning when I was going through all these tests. I was still going to work and I was not sharing with my colleagues just yet what potentially was going to become breast cancer. And then I was sitting with my boyfriend one day and we're just like, how do we navigate this road? How do we, do we tell people, do we not tell people? I feel like there's been a shift where decades ago, people did keep this very close to their vest, um, did not want to share their health concerns or what they were going through with the public. But we've come through so much advances now, I think, in medical research and survivorship that the chances of surviving breast cancer are quite high. And it's because of the transparency and the advocacy and the education that we're able to provide as survivors. So I think right there, we decided, let's just put it on Facebook in 2016 that I got diagnosed with breast cancer and the world for the next year is going to be a little different for me. And I think that also goes back to your just recent question about caregiving. The moment I decided to put this on social media, the outpour from people about this was overwhelming. And I don't know if my caregiver, boyfriend, uh, life partner, whatever term we want to use, knew that at the time. I don't know if that was his plan to say, we got to get social about this because we need all the support we can get. But thank goodness he had the foresight to work with me to make this public. And we told everybody. There are a couple of great restaurants we go to and we frequent um, in the Boston area. And I was so nervous because we became friends with, you know, the wait staff and the managers because we go to these restaurants all the time. And I was so nervous that, oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I start losing my hair? Do I wear a wig? Do I show up bald to the restaurant one day? Like, what do we do? And I didn't know how to tell people I had breast cancer, but um, I think the role of my caregiver at the time just made it seem so easy. And we would go out and he would tell everybody, it would come up in every conversation. Oh, and Laura here, you know, um, has breast cancer and she's been battling blah, blah, blah. And he would just take the words right out of my mouth. And then that almost relieved me of that like awkward, how do I tell somebody? But it just kind of rolled off his tongue. And I think, you know, you can leverage your caregivers in that way of, you know, if you're having a hard time articulating something, this is one way that they can help. They can help share your story on your behalf. Also managing phone calls, getting letters or flowers in the mail, guests coming over, wanting to see me after surgery. I think leveraging your caregiver in that component too is really helpful because you're going to be tired. But again, I'm digressing here a little bit, but why go social? 
a lot of people are asking me if I'm going to start blogging about my experience. And I was never a blogger before, and I wasn't sure if now is the right time to start blogging. So I opted to go the YouTube route where I would create YouTube videos. It was much easier for me to speak and then visually show people what I was going through. So well before thinking about launching survivingbreastcancer.org, I started our YouTube channel um, documenting my experience. Whatever I felt like talking about that day, I would just put on YouTube. And slowly I started to see that there was this community starting to form around my YouTube channel. People were actually clamoring for this information. They wanted the knowledge. They wanted the education. They wanted to see what someone was going through, what they could potentially expect if they were recently diagnosed as well. So one of the things I loved about my YouTube channel, it was real time. It was the night before surgery. This is what I'm thinking. Here's a video of me literally waking up from surgery the next day, showing examples of arm exercises or mobility, showing pictures of my drains, et cetera. So it really became an outlet for me to educate the public and at the same time creating a community around breast cancer. Well, that education and support and I guess uh, the offering of communities really what drove you to sponsor, to found and be the executive director of survivingbreastcancer.org. Can you get into that and, and basically describe what you're looking to accomplish, who you're looking to impact, and what the desired outcomes are going to be with regards to what you're bringing to the table at, uh, at SBC? Where to begin? I think it happened quite naturally or organically, right? So we had the YouTube channel and I was noticing that there were, there started to be a little bit of a following and people, you know, really starting to subscribe to my channel and wanting more of um, a community. Honestly, I thought it was going to be very easy to Google like young breast cancer survivor Boston meetup. And you would think with all the hospitals in the area, and I know the hospitals do an excellent job with their own support groups, but Honestly, in terms of searching for community and young people who actually want to talk about their experience, there was definitely a gap. So that became the impetus for me to launch survivingbreastcancer.org. I wanted to now create a nationwide network or even a global network of those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers to form this community and have support and let people know that they're not alone. You know, you might be sitting on your couch or you know, going through some sort of part of your treatment and feeling disconnected. But thank goodness for social media. And we have been able to connect in so many ways, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, blogging, et cetera, that there's this community forming. So we decided to form our nonprofit. And there's a couple key activities that we are focused on right now. And the first one is being our breast cancer survivors and friends meet and greets. We hold these throughout the country, and this is like face-to-face -face interactions with breast cancer survivors, caregivers, advocates, doctors, patient navigators, you name it. And we're going from city to city. For example, we've been recently in Boston, of course, because this is where we're based out of, but we've been to Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Chicago, Atlanta, and have some coming up on the books in North Carolina, Colorado, potentially Austin and more to come. So we really just go and bring people together over a nice brunch, share stories. And so that's one aspect of building community. The other is through our speakers bureau. So a strong component of survivingbreastcancer.org is to educate. And we travel to various events and speak about breast cancer awareness, prevention, 
or sorry, early detection, and also survivorship in the different stages of breast cancer as well, especially stage four, which needs a lot more research and funding to focus on that type of disease. So that's another aspect of what we do. And then finally, the third piece that we're developing is focused on health and wellness and how integrative care can be a complement to your Western medicine treatment. So I think when you think about breast cancer, you go through the natural stages of you know, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, or sometimes neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy, as in my case. So yes, that's what the doctors will tell you at the hospital. And so I want to come in and complement that with acupuncture, Reiki, massage, meditation, and yoga as a complement to your care. Research has shown that when you are moving, whether it's any form of exercise, vigorous or walking or stretching, and holistic treatments, you actually respond much better and can reduce or subside some of your negative side effects from from treatment. So I understand that can also be quite expensive, and I really want to break down those barriers for access. And so through fundraising as our nonprofit, we are raising funds to be able to offer this to those who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Terrific. Now, uh, perusing your uh, survivingbreastcancer.org website, I, I note that there are multiple ways for people to contribute. They can provide uh, their own particular story or narrative. They can um, uh, write a blog to be published on your website. And also they can donate um, money, assets, uh, such as cars, boats, houses, et cetera, real estate. Um, can you speak to that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many ways to be engaged with our organization. The survivor stories and our blog, um, you know, my overarching phrase is, you know, we're connected through breast cancer, but everyone's experience is unique. And so one of the things I really want to highlight on our at our organization is that I can share my experience, but it's not just one-sided. So when you come on to survivingbreastcancer.org, you can read other people's stories. People who are diagnosed with breast cancer at different ages are facing different obstacles, anywhere from, you know, someone as young as in their 20s to people in their middle ages who are married with children to older elderly people who have been diagnosed as well. So everyone has a different phase and are getting different treatments based on their unique condition. So I think it's really important to highlight the scope of our individuality and how we have come to to accept where we are in this journey. And There's no right or wrong answer either. So if you want to share your story, I do find it quite therapeutic to be able to write and share your story and help educate. So we do accept stories, photographs of anything that you're comfortable sharing with our organization. Um, If you don't want to share your survivor story, we do also accept guest bloggers on our website. And this is an opportunity as well. If there's a topic that you're passionate about or something that you want to get across, whether it's how you're utilizing meditation or yoga as part of your complementary care, exercise, diet, um, fertility, any sort of question or topic that you would like to address, um, writing for us as a guest blogger is another great way to get involved. So those are just a couple of ways. We also have volunteers. Again, as a young nonprofit, we definitely rely on the generosity of the community and volunteers to help us live out our mission through our marketing, meet and greets, um, fundraisers that we hold in various events. And then, of course, financially, we we're able to provide our services because of the generosity of the community. And so people can donate either by sending a check made out to survivingbreastcancer.org to our organization. All that information is on the donate button on our website. Or we also, you can donate by um, credit card as well. So there's a lot of ways to support our mission and help those who have been diagnosed. 
Terrific. Now, in just reviewing this introductory podcast in its entirety, I see at least two dozen additional podcasts that will be coming out where we get into uh, specifics with regards to the entire journey. Um, so with that being said, I'd like to first off compliment you and congratulate you on founding survivingbreastcancer.org. I can really see the utility there. And also congratulations on your incredible progress through your own particular journey. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you in one sentence to sum up really what you're looking to do at SBC. One sentence. One sentence. <sighs> I like to talk if you couldn't tell already. I, tell. I don't know how I can do this in one sentence, but I would say as a survivor and a founder and someone who's passionate about helping others, the goal of survivingbreastcancer.org is really to have a positive impact in building community support networks and focus on health and wellness so that we can continue to live a whole and full quality of life. Very well said. Thank you, Laura, very much. Again, that's the founder and executive director of survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm William LaFerrier. I'm a board member and business development manager for SBC. For those of you listening, there are so many ways for you to join our community. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word. Never miss a beat by following us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG and searching for our YouTube channel, Surviving Breast Cancer. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast, and we will see you again next week. Until then, continue smiling and celebrating life.